Earnings season is not killing stocks. Small caps roar back. And doubt about our economic growth model is no reason to abandon stocks. It's Wednesday, July 20th, 2022. This is the Kelly Letter Podcast. I'm Jason Kelly. A few weeks ago, bears warned that if you thought the stock market had been rough this year through June, just you wait until second quarter earnings stink and the bottom falls out. Well, we're a couple of weeks into it and all is well. Plenty of positives going on. IBM and Johnson & Johnson both beat on the top and bottom lines in the second quarter. But this is not to say that earnings have been stellar. There's plenty of bad news as well. IBM, for example, reduced its cash flow guidance. Johnson & Johnson cut its fiscal 2022 outlook. Apple said it, well, didn't say. There are rumors that Apple is planning to slow down hiring. And beyond earnings, we have plenty of bad economic data to look at. Housing starts dropped 2% in June to a nine-month low, and higher mortgage rates weigh on the home building sector. So we've, we've known that, that things are bad in the economy for a while now. Not everything. Employment looks great. But there are plenty of things for bears to hang their hat on, and, and earnings season was supposed to be one of them. It was supposed to be the next leg down. And I, I know that there is good news going on, like I just reported with IBM, Johnson & Johnson, and other company management has talked about how things aren't that bad, we're prepared for recession, we've been through recessions before, that, that kind of thing. But I actually am more encouraged by stocks holding strong despite the presence of bad news. Instead of sifting through recent reports looking for, for glimmers of light, and reasons to think, no, no, it's not that bad. Things are just fine. And high inflation is good. To justify it that way is not really worth it. We need to be realistic here. And the best way to be realistic is to note that stocks are holding up fine as the bad news comes in. Let's just look through uh, some of that stabilization here. Stocks bottomed in June and have gone sideways for more than a month. Right Now, that suggests to me that bulls were right last month when they said that bad news is priced in. Bears have been saying all along, no, no, we've got a big recession on the way. And bulls, and people who are neither bullish nor bearish, but just agnostic, I put myself in that crowd too, since we don't favor necessarily rising or falling prices at any given time, we simply react to them. And I have said many times, and would like to reiterate here, that that for us, the fluctuation of the stock market is similar to respiration, breathing in and breathing out. We never, we never say, oh, I prefer breathing in to breathing out. It's a, it's a silly statement because you really need both in order to get, get oxygen for your body. Well, similar in our plans, we, we buy low prices and sell high prices. We do prefer a, a rising stock market over the long term, and, and that's what we've gotten for all the data we have for the stock market. But periods of falling prices are necessary to our plans. If, if stocks just always went up, we wouldn't be able to do as well as if they sometimes go down and we can, we can move money in at those lower prices and then take it out at higher prices. So back to what people have been talking about in the stock market, bears were saying last month in June that no, all the news is not priced in because we're going to have a recession on the way. We haven't had it officially reported yet. When it comes out, it's going to be terrible news considering the Fed needs to keep cranking up interest rates in order to kill inflation. 
bulls were saying, no, it, it's already priced in. We, and that's how it goes in history. And I would add that agnostics like myself would also say, look, historically, stocks usually do most of their falling before a recession comes in. And then as the economic data are starting to recover and, and then continue recovering, stocks are already well on their way to a full price recovery. But of course, we can't know how it's going to go this time, and that's why there is the debate. And last month, the bears were saying, oh, just you wait. Uh, the second quarter was terrible for in the economy, and the Fed was rank, raising interest rates, and things were getting awful. And so just you wait till the second quarter earnings come out, and everything's going to go straight to the floor. So now we're there. We're a couple weeks into earnings season, and stocks are doing just fine. And I think that is a vote for the, the bulls having been right that quite a lot, if not all, of the bad news is priced in. Let's look closer at the stabilization we've seen in the last month. No, no forecasting here. Just let's look at what's happened as we transition from the bottom so far in June to a couple weeks into the earnings season. The S&P 500, actually all of the stock indexes I'm going to go through, which are the S&P 500 large cap index, S&P 400 mid cap index, and S&P 600 small cap index, plus the NASDAQ 100 mostly tech index, all of these bottomed on June 16th. Since then, the S&P 500 has recovered 7.4%. Today, it's at the same level it was on it was on June 10th. All right, so that's more than a month of, of sideways movement overall and a pretty decent recovery from the June 16th low. How about mid caps? The S&P 400 bottomed also June 16th. It has recovered 7.9% since then. And today it's at almost the same level it was on June 10th. It's a little bit shy of that, but it's, it's right around there. Small caps. The S&P 600 bottomed June 16th. It has recovered 8.1% since then. So both mid caps and small caps have come back stronger than large caps. Today, the small cap S&P 600 index is at almost the same level it was on June 10th. It also is a little bit shy. The NASDAQ 100, the mostly tech index that, that powers our th uh, 9SIG 3X leverage plan, also bottomed on June 16th, it has recovered 10.1% since then. Today, it's at the same level it was on June 9th. So basically, the whole stock market bottomed on June 16th, and it is now back to the level it was on June, June 9th or 10th, right in there, which shows more than a month of going sideways. And that's even as we had a lot more economic data come out, and now we're a couple weeks into earnings season, and still overall, the recent message, last five weeks or so, is sideways movement. Not bad, right? The big inflation report for June is on the books. Bad company news is flowing, mixed in with good news. But stocks are holding up. So, maybe we can conclude that the bad forecasts did their work ahead of time after all, and that we're in another repeat of history where stocks are going to do most of their stock price decline ahead of a recession and then possibly they will do their recovery starting before the economy gets back on its feet. I think that's pretty encouraging to anybody who has bought recently, bought in the first half of the year, taking advantage of these lower prices. We are among those people. Our plans, the, the Kelletter plans, simply react to where prices go. Well, 
Prices dropped in the first quarter, they dropped further in the second quarter, so we bought and then we bought again. And as I mentioned a couple weeks ago on this podcast, we are almost entirely in, all in to stocks. So anything that, that looks like we, we've gone side, the, the stock market is stabilizing and heading higher is good news for us, but we are not forecasting that. The, the, the plans never forecast. It would just be great for them if, if the stock market went up from here. And I should mention that here. A little bit of sponsorship for the Kelly Letter, heads up. If you feel stress when confronting the constant uncertainty of the stock market, you're not alone. I, I felt that in the past. I had many family events, personal moments in my life interrupted by stock market chaos. I remember being at an amusement park once, looking at a roller coaster ride during the, one of the crashes. It was during the dot-com crash, actually. And I was thinking as the roller coaster was going, that's no wonder that's the metaphor for stocks all the time. That's exactly what it feels like. And when are they going to go back up? And you know, all that kind of stuff. Every stock investor knows what this can feel like. I did. And I was in the forecasting business at one point, not long after that, and actually did very well in forecasting. But I can't jump up, jump up and down being proud of that because a lot of that is luck. And basically, if, here's a tip. If you want to do well in a forecasting competition, just always call for stocks to go up. Times like the last six months, you won't do well, but because stocks rise two-thirds of the time, you'll do way better than people trying to actually guess where stocks are going to twist and turn. But my main point right now is just to tell you that I developed the SIG system to get around stock market stress. I wanted something that wasn't gut guessing, that just looked at prices and reacted in an, an automated, fully machine-like manner to where those prices went. because. We just stink at trying to figure out what is going to send stock prices where, which pressure is going to matter, when it's going to all kick in. And it's a fool's errand, frankly. And you have a lot better things to do in your life than that. Even if you love investing as a hobby and you're focused on it, you should get the bulk of your money into automated, automated rather, stock price reaction. It's, it's so much more effective. It relieves you of a lot of stress. And if you want to trade just for the fun of it or for the hobby of it, that's fine. Do that on a side account. But do not entrust your future to the gut feelings of yourself or anybody else. Certainly not pundits who use forecasting as a marketing tool. You know why? Because nobody remembers all the calls for crashes that didn't pan out. And then if they say it's going to crash, it's going to crash for five years straight. And then finally it does crash. You know what they say? Not, I was finally right. Not, sorry for all those years I was wrong and you missed out on all those profits. No, no. What they say is, I was right. I'm the guy who called the big crash. Thank goodness you followed me. And I think you know this, but, but have you actually moved the bulk of your future into rational reaction that can be counted upon through this fog that we are constantly in as stock market investors? I, I, I hope that you will consider joining us at the Kelly Letter and, and really turning your, your financial future around now. And now is a great time to do this. It might not be exactly the great time that we jumped on at the beginning of this month, but it's close enough. And who knows? Maybe the bottom is not in. There will be another chance. And the point here is not to call the bottom, but to move yourself onto something that doesn't depend on calling bottoms and, and tops in the stock market. That is the Kelly Letter, which is the, the, the power behind this podcast. Small caps are roaring back. Yesterday, the Russell 2000 index of small company stocks rose 3.5%. 
That was its best one-day gain since January 6, 2021. A date that might seem familiar to you, given the congressional hearings going on now about the Capitol attack that day. We're not talking about that. We're talking about small cap stocks. And yesterday was their best day since that January 6, 2021. The S&P Small Cap 600, that's the small cap index I prefer and which we use in the 3SIG plan, also posted a 3.5% gain. It was a broad rally in which the S&P 500 gained 2.8%, but small caps led the pack. Now this, this means a lot to me because the original SIG plan is 3SIG, and it's been a long time for a small cap stock since small cap stocks have shined. Now, actually, more than 3SIG, I believe this is 6SIG's moment. That's, uh, we have three plans in the letter, as, as subscribers know. The 1X, that's no leverage 3SIG plan, which uses small cap stocks, that S&P small cap 600. The 2X leverage plan is 6SIG, and that uses the mid cap 400 index. And then we have the 3X leverage plan, 9SIG, that uses the NASDAQ 100 at 3X leverage. The reason I think and have thought for a while now that this is Six Sig's moment is because it's been sidelined for a while. It's been a long time since this plan has been in the spotlight. And running these three different plans, they, they, they take turns. They kind of hopscotch to the front. And Nine Sig, the NASDAQ 100 plan, has dominated for so long that, that even long-term readers have said, I don't know, do we need to keep Three Sig around at all? Maybe we should just scuttle that and Six Sig too. That, that's even less impressive. That's just I mean, the 2x leverage with mid-cap stocks, is that ever going to pay off? And I know, as the researcher of the plans, that the long-term says, yes, of course they're going to come back. We go through these vicissitudes, these, these times when, when index A leads the pack, other times when index B leads the pack, and so on. I mean, this is all cyclical. So yes, at some point, we're going to see better times for the 6% signal. Well, quietly, and not so quietly, because I wrote about it in the letter, I've been hoping that that time would come. I would like to see 3SIG and 6SIG take the lead position for a while. And maybe that's finally happening, but you should know that I'm a little bit predisposed to being happy to report this. So I, I might inject a little bias into this reporting here. But nonetheless, it's, it's, been, it's been pretty good lately for, for 3SIG and 6SIG. I wrote last month in the Kelly Letter Note 25, sent June 19th, that the, the 6% signal plan had more relative buying power um, for, for its buy signal than the other plans. And at the time, it had 95% of the buying power it would need to fill its entire buy signal. And what this means, we have a, a, a stock fund and a bond fund in each plan. That's it, just two funds per plan. The buying power is kept in the bond fund which usually doesn't go down very much. The first half of this year was quite rare, and bond funds went down a lot for them. But nonetheless, relative to stocks, they went down a lot less. So over the long haul, bond funds are, general bond funds are a great place to keep buying power, and that's where we keep all of our buying power. And in, in, in June, near, near the low for the stock market, the 6% signal plan had enough money in its bond fund to pay for 95% of the buy signal that was shown at that time. In the other plans, it was lower. For example, in the 3% signal plan, the buying power could only pay for 48% of the full signal, and in the 9-sig plan, only 35%. 
So, you know, Six Sig was going to be able to jump on the bargains to a much greater degree than its, its cousins, Three Sig and Nine Sig. I wrote in that letter, note 25, sent June 19th, quote, Among our plans, there sits long-neglected Six Sig, ready to play catch-up. It's going to fund nearly its entire buy signal next month, at which point it will be almost all in for 2x the recovery of mid-cap stocks. End quote. Well, it ended up fully funding its buy signal at the beginning of this month, 100%, and is often running in the recovery. And you might wonder about that change. Well, the reason for that is, as I mentioned earlier in the, in the podcast, stocks began recovering after that, that, June, that June 16th low. And so because the price of stocks came up higher, the buy signal for all of the plans became smaller. In other words, what they were going to buy was not as low price, so the bargain wasn't as big, so there wasn't a call to pull in quite as much money. Therefore, Six Sig ended up with the same amount of buying power. It was able to pay for 100% of its buy signal, whereas closer to the low in June, it was only able to pay for 95%. Didn't matter because the signal didn't happen until July 5th. That's when the, the orders filled, but we do look each week at the current state of the signals, and at that time, it was only able to pay for 95%. Well, now it's almost all in, right? With 100% of that signal funded. And things are looking pretty good. Yesterday, for example, its stock fund gained 6.6%. And since its July 5th buy, the 6% signal stock fund is up 10.8%. So that's pretty good. And if you're a long-term investor who's, who's felt a little bit unhappy with how things were, were going in the first half of the year, this, this, is a, this is a reason to feel better. Yes, the future is uncertain, but the future is always uncertain. Stocks did a lot of declining in the first half of the year, and they have not done much declining over the last five weeks in aggregate, right? So there's some stabilization going on, and we're starting to see leadership from that bottom among smaller and mid-cap stocks. And that also feels good because we felt for a long time that that, that segment of the market is, is overdue for some time at the front of the pack. And to see that coming around uh, feels, feels really good. Um, so maybe we're finally entering a period of smaller, smaller cap outperformance. Um, and I, I would really hope so. I would point out that, that we're not the only ones that have been looking for this to change over time. It was back in, in, <clears throat> excuse me, in February that I wrote about this for, in, in the Kelly letter. At that time, Credit Suisse was noting that fourth quarter earnings reports were showing value stock earnings up 30% compared with 25% for growth companies. And it was saying that maybe this is a good time to start looking at some neglected small caps. And James Paulson at Luthold told MarketWatch at that time that smaller caps have only ever been relatively cheaper once before in recent history. And that was during the tech bubble. That's you know, a couple decades ago. At that time in February of this year, their forward PE was currently only 70% that of larger cap stocks. And in 2000, it got all the way down to 60%. But in February, the S&P small cap 600 traded at a forward PE of 14.5 compared with 20.2 for the S&P 500. And Bank of America seconded that. This is also back in February. Bank of America wrote in a research note, quote, small caps now trade at historical discount to large caps on every valuation metric we track, end quote. 
That was February. We were hoping to, to see a, a, a rebound to the front for smaller cap stocks. It didn't happen until now. If it is happening now, who knows? It might still be off. But at least over the last five weeks or so, small caps have done quite well. And, and even in yesterday's broad rally, they, they did quite well. And that feels good. So you long-suffering 3% signal and 6% signal investors, take heart. Your time may be upon us. Every once in a while, I'm asked whether I think forever growing AA, forever growing economy is possible and whether we'll reach the end of growth soon. This seems to come up a lot more recently as the feeling that we're in doomsdays or at the, the end of times or everything's going wrong in the world is on a lot of people's minds. I'm not making fun of that. I'm not. I, I am as human as the next person. Despite you're not sitting with me in person, just trust me, I'm fully human. And I'm aware of the emotions that go with, with life and with stock investing, which is intertwined with life, right? Even we rational investors are still human and well aware of the emotions that are on people's minds. So while my plans, the Kelletter plans, will, will not take any action based on whether the planet is warming or politics are going off the rails or mass shootings are up or anything like that, things that drag people down, they won't affect the plans, but I am certainly sympathetic to them affecting the mood. And the mood can leak over to the economy for sure and into the stock market as well. And because of that, I suppose, recently I've seen quite a bit of questioning about the economic growth model. Is this really where humanity should focus. Are we just going to grow forever? Is that what we do? We're going to grow, 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 even though we're already overusing resources, causing damage to the planet, for example. I know not everybody believes that, but people who do believe that strongly think that one way we need to reverse that is by changing our growth model. Why is it always just more, more, more forever? And because of the recent mood that's prevailing out there, I've received quite a lot of, of inquiry along these lines. For example, I received a question from a longtime reader in Switzerland about Europe's growth model and whether that could damage the value of stocks for the long haul. He wrote, a quote from his email, Many leaders, including Macron, that's the president of France, Emmanuel Macron, are reconsidering alternatives to our growth model. This may impact the current financial paradigm based on continuous growth of stocks over the long term, end quote. So what he wanted to know is, is if our stock plans, that's the three, six, nine plans that I'm always talking about, and then the recently debuted income SIG plan, if our plans are predicated on this idea that over the long haul, the economy will grow, therefore corporate earnings will grow, therefore the stock market will, in aggregate, appreciate over time as it's done for the last 80 years, if that is going to stop, then don't our plans need to be rejiggered to account for the disappearance of the long-term economic growth model? First of all, I'm not sure how much reconsidering is going on. Okay, now, and, and with that, I'm referring back to what he was talking about with, with uh, President Macron. Um, yes, he has talked about changing the growth model, but that, that's just political talk, and maybe something will come of that, but we haven't seen anything come of it yet. 
So far, for example, the, the EU hasn't reduced its growth forecast by much. A couple of weeks ago, it, it dropped it down to 2.6% uh, for this year from 2.7% previously. So that's a tick lower, but it's not, it's, not, it's not a statement that we're done growing. The first quarter came in stronger than expected, which was possibly a function of so much bad news having been fire-hosed ahead of time. Everybody thought, oh boy, we're going to we're going to flatline or go negative here, and, and it wasn't that bad. Now, when President Macron talks about changing the growth model, I don't really see how revolutionary that is. Um, for example, I, I found in his speech last month in Brussels, quote from Emmanuel Macron in English, we did not see the war coming and had to take massive decisions to rise to the challenge of the conflict, but it has only strengthened, confirmed, and validated the belief that was central to our work, the need for greater European sovereignty now more than ever. That sovereignty, which just two or three years ago looked like a crazy French idea, has now enabled us to build a genuine convergence of views. I believe we have all taken the measure of the importance of European technological sovereignty, defense sovereignty, and energy sovereignty. This crisis, this war in Europe, has ultimately boosted our collective agenda. End quote. Now that's, that's interesting to look at, because he's talking about three areas there, um, technological sovereignty, defense sovereignty, and energy sovereignty. To get there, in other words, to get away from depending on the United States for, for a lot of that, or well, not energy, the energy part would be depending on Russia, but to, to get away from these dependencies, it seems like Europe would have to do quite a lot of growing itself in these areas. So is this really an example of abandoning the growth model or just rearranging where the emphasis is placed? Beyond that, even if macroeconomic growth stalled, if, if indexes just went, or if, if economic growth just went to zero for an extended period, I'm not sure that means that broad stock market indexes would stop working. Uh, companies would find their own growth somehow, and it's possible we'd need to switch to other indexes that focused on certain types of companies that are doing better in the new environment, but that would be a very long-term transition, and um, I, don't, I just don't think, A, that there is an imminent slowdown in growth on the way in, in Europe or anywhere else. And, and B, that even if there, there were, I'm not sure that that would require us to change our plans. But let's move beyond that one email from Europe. Let's, let's move to a different way of looking at this in, in, a, broader, in a broader sense, not, not to confine this to Europe. This idea that, that a growth model um, is, it needs to be abandoned. This idea of switching from a growth model to something else is a recurring one, not a new one. In the New York Times Magazine just this week, David Marches interviewed Herman Daly. He is an emeritus professor at the University of Maryland School of Public Policy and a former senior economist for the World Bank. He's 84 years old and for the past 50 years has been questioning the wisdom of prioritizing economic growth. This is not a new thing. For 50 years, he's been on this. And in a moment, I'm going to tell you about a, a book that, has, that, that looked at this 50 years ago, a full report that became a book 50 years ago about whether we could continue growing. Well, one of the things that Herman Daly told David Marchese in the, the New York Times Magazine, he, 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 he asked, does growth, as it's currently practiced and measured, 
really increase wealth? Is it making us richer in any aggregate sense, or might it be increasing the cost faster than the benefits and making us poorer? This is an excellent question, because the reason mainstream economists don't have the answer to that is that they don't measure the cost. They only measure benefits. This is what he's pointing out. That's what GDP is. So we, we look at, okay, how much the, the gross domestic product is going up? How much, did we, how much more did the factory pump out? How many more services did, did people pay for? But at what cost? That is a really critical question. And it's not just a question of, of cost to the environment, for example. This is not just a green issue, but it is also that. If we, if we use more of our natural resources, we're going to increase our gross domestic product. But is it worth the trade-off? Is it worth the high price we're paying in order to get that? He's not answering that, whether it is worth it. What he's pointing out is that the way we measure the health of the economy, the strength of the economy, doesn't even take into account these costs. We are not penalized for that. It's just, it's just raw growth without any sort of input. So it's, it's, it's a distorted measure. Now, the way we look at it, development is, is always good. Improvement is always good. But, but bigger is not always better is what he's pointing out. Um, for example, uh, computers have gotten smaller as they got better. So there's just one quick, easy way to say that bigger is not always the way to go. And I think economically what this translates to is that, that we can rearrange what's going on in the economy without necessarily growing it and still make it healthy. For instance, right now, Healthcare is not counted as part of GDP, but military spending is. Well, if if we change that around so that 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 spending on healthcare, providing people with healthcare, turning turning the cost of keeping the population healthy into a a positive measurement for the economy, well, then then economists for various presidential administrations, people in government who want to say, look how well I'm doing as the leader here would be able to emphasize healthcare spending instead of military spending. For example, this is not a, a political speech, but just the, the point that Herman Daly is making is that we could re-engineer our economic metrics to measure a more holistic, a more overall quality of life type of vibe, take a pulse of more than just raw output in order to understand whether our economy is doing a good job or not. And that could trickle down to companies as well, so that they were having to report also on, on the, the quality of life index, not, not just gross domestic product or quarterly growth rates. And that's really the point that Herman Daly is making, is that, that all we emphasize, all we have emphasized to date is how much we grow, grow, grow. What is that final output number? We have to move heaven and earth to boost that final output number. Everybody from the C-suite of a corporation to the halls of Congress, to the White House, to, to the governance of France, right? Grow, grow, grow. Well, we don't really know that the living standard is going up, right? If, if we did subtract, this is his point again, if we subtract for deaths and injuries caused by automobile accidents or chemical pollution, wildfires, and many other costs that happen because of excessive growth, it's not clear at all that we're making a good trade-off with, with what we're spending, what we're using up to achieve the growth that everybody is focused on and calling a healthy thing. Yes, we want to grow, but we want to grow in a, in, in a healthy way, right? Now, here is the pull quote I want to I wanna give you from him. Quote from Herman Daly, The failure of a growth economy to grow is a disaster. The success of a steady-state economy not to grow is not a disaster. 
It's like the difference between an airplane and a helicopter. An airplane is designed for forward motion. If an airplane has to stand still, it'll crash. A helicopter is designed to stand still, like a hummingbird. So it's a comparison between two different designs, and the failure of one does not imply the failure or success of the other. End quote. That's an excellent point, and it really gets to what I was talking about with rearranging the different parts of the economy instead of just measuring that overall top growth. And if, if we're going to have an economic model that switches to that, no one's saying that's imminent or, or we're, we're right there, but if we are going to go to that, we're still going to have winners and losers within that new economy where instead of just going for overall gangbusters growth over time, we're going for a selective uh, either regional growth or sector growth or something along those lines. And it's going to be, as it should be in a capitalist economy, competition among companies to see who can grab the biggest amount of that growth and that revenue that's going on. In which case, stock market investing should still work. And there's no reason to think that our idea of, of, of price reaction would stop working simply because the, the macro growth model changed. I, I would point out that Japan's real estate market illustrates that outcomes can be engineered. I learned this when I first moved to Japan and I was looking to buy real estate here. I'm recording this in Japan right now because I'd, I'd grown up in America and had bought real estate in America and saw the value of an appreciating real estate portfolio in America. Well, contrary to many Americans' belief, including this one at one point, Real estate price appreciation is not a natural law. In fact, no price appreciation is. Central banks make that happen, right? Interest rates and, and the tax code in America are what make real estate go up over time. Contrary to popular belief, it is not scarcity of land value that causes real estate to appreciate. There is so much land available in America that that is not what's driving prices. It does contribute in some highly concentrated urban zones. For example, even in Japan, if you get into downtown Tokyo, downtown Osaka, places like that are in very high demand and a limited amount of space, then yes, scarcity does start contributing to long-term price appreciation. But the, the main thing that keeps it going up in America is that the, the tax code says if you sell your house and then you don't reinvest all the money in a new house, you have to pay huge capital gains on that. So the impetus is every time you sell a property, you need to move that money into something priced more. That's one of the pressures that keeps the real estate values going higher in America. In Japan, people look at a you know, quote-unquote used house the same way in America we look at a quote-unquote used car, right? Well, it is a used car, but, but they, they call houses that, used houses. Why would you want that? That should be worth less than a new house. But in America, we don't look at it that way, right? Oh, the, you know, this house 20 years ago was worth half the price it's, it's, it's worth today. And that seems normal in America, but when you look at it through a Japanese lens of, really, a used house, one that doesn't have a new roof? and a new water heater, and new floors, and a new paint job, that, that house is worth more than a brand new one built now? Well, um, in some cases, yes, but that is an engineered phenomenon, which is a bit of a sidebar to point out simply that it would be possible to have a different type of economy. If, if the tax code were re rewritten, if interest rates were treated differently, we could have a different type of economy. So it's not a, an insane notion to talk about a, a steady state economy instead of a growth forever type of economy. The problem for 
stock market investors looking to possibly abandon stocks because they think it's now time for the growth model to end, is that, like national debt, this may take a long time to get resolved. You ready for this? A book called The Limits to Growth came out in March 1972. And it was very compelling. It was based on, it was a report that turned into a book. It was based on the work of MIT's Jay Forrester. And it said that unless the world changed its consumption of resources, quote from the report, the most probable result will be a rather sudden and uncontrollable decline in both population and industrial capacity, end quote. That should sound familiar along the lines of the, the planet's the planet's on fire, the politicians are clueless, and so on. Just the things that have us down all the time now, that it's, it's, a, it's a doomsday scenario all the time. It's 24-7. We even call it doom scrolling, right? Well, this idea that the planet can only take so much of our growth obsession is not new. It's been around for 50 plus years. And that book was a smash success, okay? Don't think that this is some obscure thing I found in the dusty back shelf of my office. This book sold more than 30 million copies. So this idea that we've reached the end of growth is not new. It's not hidden. It's not unknown. Economists, people in the know, have been talking about this for a long time. In a 50-year look back at the book in March of this year, the magazine Nature editorialized that the book did a lot of good, actually, pushing the notion that economies can grow without making the planet unlivable, similar to what, what I was talking about earlier. One example offered by the editorial board is that Nordic nations have grown even as their carbon emissions have declined. So this implies that what's needed is much faster adoption of technology, such as renewable energy, in the opinion of the Nature editorial board. So maybe a redefinition of GDP is in order, so that it includes costs and begins counting things like healthcare as a thumbs-up metric. Currently, as I mentioned, health spending doesn't contribute to GDP that in the same way that, for example, military spending does. So that's one idea that if we, if we made sure healthcare was included, we made sure other things that, that we as a society would like to emphasize for a change were included, then we could have something like a, a wellness index, a general happiness index that did take costs into account and not just the bottom line growth that is what's driving things right now. These are valuable long-term thoughts. I, I think we can all agree that uh, a happiness index would be nice, maybe a more, I don't know, just something along those lines, more, more uh, of a fairness index, something like that, that, that would show more, a greater percentage of society was living in a happy way. That would be a wonderful economic metric to show that, that the, the economy is working for everybody. These are valuable long-term thoughts. However, they are not useful for market timing. Broad indexes used in conjunction with price reaction should fare well through even a giant transition to a steady-state economy, even if that were imminent, which at this point it does not look to be. So if you were tempted to give up on stocks because of a transition from growth to the steady-state economy, instead of abandoning stock, abandon the thought. This has been great. Thank you for listening. This is the Kelly Letter Podcast. I'm Jason Kelly. Please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast from any of the easy links I put up for you at jasonkelly.com to places like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other platforms. I would love it if you were subscribed. 
Also, at my website, jasonkelly.com, you'll find links to everything mentioned in this episode, including the June housing starts reported by the U.S. Census Bureau, the, the article in the New York Times Magazine called The Pioneering Economist Says Our Obsession with Growth Must End, that article's by David Marchese, and then a link to the Wikipedia article about that 1972 report, The Limits to Growth. And finally, the, the Nature Magazine editorial board article, Are There Limits to Economic Growth? It's Time to Call Time on a 50-Year Argument. Those are all at the website in the episode show notes. And there's a comment section where you can interact with me and your fellow listeners, plus the entire podcast archive, all, all <laughs> the, the uh, bursting list of three episodes so far. They're all there. So if you have a moment, please leave a review wherever you review podcasts. And the only thing I'd love more than that, as you know, is to welcome you to The Kelly Letter. I hope you'll subscribe at jasonkelly.com and we'll get you on board with the materials I have for that so you can start your own market-beating, low-stress SIG system plan. I send new letters every Sunday morning so I can see you as soon as this Sunday. But if you do nothing else, please join the free list at the top right of jasonkelly.com. There's an empty field there just waiting for your email address. That's it. Enter, click sign up, and you'll be on your way. Current subscribers, as ever, thank you for your support. I will see you Sunday.